Hi, and welcome to the VSuit podcast, an audio-only podcast covering everything in virtualization from VSuit to VNuts. This week, Christian Moen, Ed Serwin, and myself have been joined by Bob Plankers, another of the virtualization professionals that I met up with at last year's VMworld Europe. Bob, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Excellent, excellent. Uh, you've uh, have you been covered hit by the snow recently? Are you all snowed in? And we're receiving snow right now, actually. But uh, yeah, you know, uh, here in Madison, Wisconsin, the uh, in the U.S., you know, we get a lot, uh, get quite a bit of snow. So, you know, uh, nothing we can't deal with. Excellent. Unlike England, I guess. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, you can actually get to work and. Yep, yep, you can get to work and. Uh, you know, uh, my employer actually is really cool about uh, allowing uh, employees to work from home and things like that. So uh, digging out after a big snowfall isn't uh, that big of a deal. I believe Chicago got hammered um, quite a bit worse than Madison, though, right? Yep, that is correct. Uh, Lakeshore Drive, one of the uh, big thoroughfares on uh, on or in Chicago in the Chicago area, was completely snowed in. People were abandoning their cars. There's some pictures out there on Flickr and that of it just looks like some sort of post-apocalyptic uh, mm-hmm. view of you know Chicago with buses abandoned and everything. You know, yeah, I'm almost sad that I missed it. The first year I missed the biggest snow that Chicago ever saw. And first year I was out of the country. Yeah, well, you know, you give a you give a little, you get a little, I guess, when you yeah. move out. <laughs> I think I saw the city of. Chicago made an iPhone app to reunite own car owners with their lost cars. Oh, cool. It's <laughs> a pretty nifty idea, though. But, but the weird well, thing I saw in a lot of the pictures was people actually, like, their car doors were open, their windows were open. Like, what were they thinking when they were leaving the car? I don't know. <laughs> I'm guessing the cars were only lost because they towed them. So, you know, it's <laughs> nice if they actually provide you a way of finding your car again, you know. Excellent. Um, question: How about yourself? How you, have, have you been doing? No, it's been good. Been good. Um, did the uh, infamous, I guess, talk uh, on Wednesday for the, for the digital ship conference in in Bergen? Uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, actually, uh, first time I've done a talk in, in uh, not in Norwegian and did it in English. The whole thing. So that's pretty cool. Two hundred fifty people in the room and quite a lot of. Questions from the from the audience after we we were done, so it uh, was a lot of fun. Cool. So um, it was quite a long uh, long talk. Was it about half hour? Or so you had to do. Yeah, about that. Cool. It's hard enough doing doing a talk like that, but uh, doing it in not in your native tongue, I think, has got to be a level a level harder. I think. Yeah, I don't know. It's, a, it's the first time I've done it. I'm pretty confident with the the topic uh, we were talking about with regards to managing IT on a fleet of, uh, of floating remote offices, which was basically the idea of the whole thing. So, as I designed the whole, uh, pretty much designed the whole interf- inter the whole network we have there, I, I'm pretty confident in how it works. So it, that that helps a lot. Ed, how about yourself? Well, yeah, I just finished my uh, my first year here living in Switzerland and uh, finished the project finished the project for why I basically moved here. Um, last SAP system was moved over here. Everything went production, and um, not one person was able to complain about the virtual infrastructure. So, pretty happy. That's, uh, certainly, something to be proud of when yeah. you can migrate an entire SAP landscape 
uh, transatlantic and from physical to virtual and not have anyone bitch about it. So. Yeah, we only had one or two latency complaints, but um, <clears throat> luckily I was able to throw, we were able to throw most of that back to the programmers that they shouldn't, their screens shouldn't be doing so many round trips. So, <laughs> Fair enough. That's always, uh, always good fun. Uh, and uh, Bob, how about yourself? Yes. It's uh, been been a, a fairly busy week at the, the front line. You're, uh, if I recall correctly, um, you're a, an admin at a major uh, college slash university or whatever it's called. Yeah, I'm uh, the lead virtualization guy for the University of Wisconsin Madison. So uh, the uh, um, yeah, we've got a couple of, of um, environments that uh, needed some attention this week. It's uh, actually all week. I was, um, believe it or not, I've been doing this for. I don't know, eight years now or whatever, all this VMware stuff. And uh, I finally decided that 2011 was going to be the uh, time for me to actually work on some of my certifications. So I actually spent all of this week in the uh, vSphere 4.1 install configuration and management class uh, that VMware offers. And uh, that was that was interesting, you know. A bit but, boring uh, for you, huh? It, yeah, well, I actually learned a couple of things, but the uh, on the whole, it was nothing, nothing new, you know. And I kind of went into it expecting that, but the classes required in order to get any of the certifications, and I, I don't necessarily disagree with that, you know. Certifications where you can just sit down and take the test, you you know, there's well, there's that old debate, you know, do you let people just take the test or do you make them go through a class? You know, class is expensive, but you at least know you can truly certified that they've at least seen some of the some of the topic material you know so excellent so you're you're going for your your vcp yep i'm going to do vcp4 and then i'm going to move on to the vcap uh the two vcap ones and i'm hoping that uh eventually i'll get up to the vcdx it'll probably be vcdx5 by the time i i get to it but uh you know just making my way to it yeah, it's one of those things. You, you've got to start it somewhere. If, if you're always waiting for the next version, you'll, you'll never get around to taking it. Um, yep. Yep. That's. But so, uh, but so, did you actually have to go to a training center for your your course, or was it delivered online? Oh, uh, actually, neither. Uh, one of the options for us, we had enough people on campus. Uh, even though uh, I do virtualization stuff for campus, there's still a, a number of departments here that uh, are doing their own VMware installations and, or, and support and all that. And so we, uh, IT on our campus is somewhat distributed. And the uh, we were able to assemble enough people that wanted to take this course that uh, we got a trainer to come to us, and we've got we used one of the on-campus training for the training classrooms just to take it. So actually, it was it was really no pain at all. I just walked down the hall from my office and uh, I was in training. So that was actually really cool. Excellent. Oh, it was. Um think that the best thing about a course isn't necessarily the material because it's been a long time since I've been on a course where the materials really challenged me it's I don't know perhaps it's just because my uh, employers have never really sent me on a course for anything massively brand new so it's kind of things I know anyway but it's the conversations and the um, the real real life applications of certain parts of the the topics that get discussed during a, a live course is uh, for me the best take home from those because otherwise you you might as well sit at home with um, the train signal videos if if you're just going to listen to the lectures um, and the train signal videos are a, a great resource for it but you know if you just want the lectures you can you can save yourself an awful lot of money just by by watching the video lectures 
Oh, I agree completely. But uh, and I agree about the the sort of side conversations or whatever. You know, there's always been the joke that uh, you know conferences are like that as well, where you know the most important track at a conference is actually the hallway track. You know, and <laughs> the uh, but the um, it's the community lounge at. Uh Year, oh, yeah, abs- yeah, absolutely. You know, like where you sit and talk and, you know, if you're having a problem, you throw it out there and you get a whole bunch of opinions on it. And, you know, and, and that was it was no different in this class. It was really cool to to see people. Well, even me, you know, like you know, one of the things that I've been pretty lax about is uh, making sure, you know, resource reservations and shares and all that stuff are set correctly in my environment. To some extent, uh, my my VMs, well, I've got enough resources in, in my environment that my VMs really aren't like duking it out for, you know, resources or anything like that. But, you know, when there is contention, uh, I'm pretty sure right now that my the shares and the share settings for example are completely misconfigured you know and that's something until i took this class that i really hadn't hadn't thought too much about but you know oh, if, you, if you had like nested nested pools you've got nested pools and then uh, siblings within the pool uh you know when uh if i've got production hosts uh two different production uh vms in the same resource pool uh, I've got situations where one of them is clearly more important than the other, you know, but th- the way like IO shares are done, you know, when you have two hard disks on a two virtual hard disks on a VM, it's got twice as many shares as a VM that's got one virtual hard disk. And so yep. we've got some production VMs that are way more important but have one single disk. And some production VMs that, you know, they're still production, but they're lesser apps. You know, we could do without them for, for a while if, if bad things happened that have two or three or four virtual hard disks, just given the way that the sysadmins have set them up. And so those VMs, those lesser VMs, are getting two, three, four times more priority when there's contention, you know, and I'm going to have to go back and take a look at that. That's a real in my environment, I think that's uh, a real big takeaway that I've I've gotten from this class is you know actual shares versus resource pools and all that stuff. So yeah, I remember the biggest one I got was the um, someone had started using resource pools almost as a folder structure. Oh um, yes. rather than yeah, so that that was the the first takeaway. This is going back a couple of years, but that was the first takeaway I got. It was like right, let's get rid of all of those, flatten the lot. And we'll have, yep. we'll have and another steps. common problem you see is um, a lot of people put the just leave some machines in the root resource pool. And they don't realize that they can crush all the machines that are in these um, special setup resource pools. Yeah, that's yes. something that's unlimited, essentially, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, can really steal resources. Yeah, it's, you know, uh, I, I do definitely see why a lot of en- environments don't have resource pools yep. and all that stuff, because it's very, it gets very complex, you know, and uh, uh, though I'm still waiting for my, uh, I ordered a copy of the uh, uh, the HA and DRS book, uh, and uh, uh, I'm still waiting for that to arrive, but the... Uh, um, I'm guessing that a lot of the HA, a lot of what that book goes into is all of these recent, how resource pools and resource reservations and shares and all that stuff really interact with the DRS and HA and all that stuff. It gets very, very complex really quickly. Yeah, I read the book actually from uh, front to back like, like you would read a novel <clears throat> and I actually came away with, with quite a few things. I yeah, well, I, I did the same. I'm going to put my hand up and you know call me a massive geek if you like, but I did exactly the same. I sat down and I read it, 
um, cover to cover in like a morning. Um, and yeah, what a, a great book! Great book. It's uh, very very technical. Um, and a few things that you know I, I'd never realised, like um, a favourite one: virtual machine. Uh, monitoring when you're using HA if your machine does actually blue screen it takes a screenshot of the console before it dies oh see so like I, I never knew yeah. that yeah that's really cool that that's yeah I'm, I'm, it's, it's just one of those little things that why don't they make more noise about that or perhaps it might just be a 4-1 thing um, that they've only really sort of released in um, but you know no I think it's, it's a good book and I can see why um, Duncan and Frank had to self-publish it because even your average author is going to look at it and the average sort of publisher is going to look at it and go, ooh, that's a bit niche. Even for a niche itself, virtualization books in general are quite niche. But for a niche within a niche, um, you know, it's great that it's selling well. Um, but I'm guessing it's not the sort of thing that would have been picked up by a major publisher because of the, uh, the level of speciality of the content. But those yeah, niche even... books are what I'm really, what I really am looking for. Like, I don't yeah. want to read any more general vSphere books. Uh, it's like 20 of you them all, now. You probably already know how to turn on a VM or what virtualization is good for. You know, I, I love the beginnings of presentations and the beginnings of books and stuff like that that uh, go into why virtualization is awesome. It's like, come <laughs> on. I'd just like a book all about virtual networking or all about, well, for instance, the new Power CLI one that Alan Rainolf is putting out should be pretty interesting read. Yeah, Al's book, certainly, again, it, he's, he's going to go straight into it. Um, because if you, if you do want to read a general one, there are loads of great books of you know, just how to use vSphere, which is fine for probably the level 100 type people, but we want a... You know, it's certainly what Microsoft terms their different levels. You want a level level four hundred, but um, something that is a proper deep dive. Uh, although I'm sure Duncan and Frank have probably copyrighted not only the color orange but the word deep dive. They're uh, Dutch. So. That's why. <laughs> uh, that, but that's actually the uh, the thing. Uh, I, I think we need more books like that. Uh, what do you think of the design book that's coming out? Someone said they're the um, yeah, I don't know. I haven't heard the, the full details as to whether it's a deep dive design book as much as you can dive deeply into designs. And I'm going to stop using words to begin with D because it's <laughs> sounding like a poem. Um, but yeah, that's that's Forbes, Guthrie, Scott Lowe, and Mike side of the casing, isn't it? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so you know, that. three three pretty knowledgeable guys. Yeah. Is it going to be the sort of thing that will be a a nice background to say I've got to start my uh, VCDX design and every time I, I look at the, the application form I, I cry a little bit because it, there's a lot of data that goes in and if I in my current role which I'm in for about another three weeks now um, I'm not doing designs day in day out of a virtual infrastructure and our virtual infrastructure wasn't designed around a given specification. I suspect a little bit like Bob's, it kind of just grew. Um, and yes, there was some design done at, on a sort of a per cluster level, but you didn't say, right, we're going to virtualize this resource, X amount of virtual machines, and we're going to design something like this. It's You design to what your network team have already got, so you have to sort of interface with that, and you design with the existing storage that's in place. 
um, because the storage team won't, won't let you have a word in edgeways on what storage you've got. From, uh, from what I, I see, a lot of people in the design, what they do is they take a, a design that they did previously and then put a fictitious spin on it to be able to add yeah. other stuff and make it make more sense for the VCDX uh, application. I don't, I don't think it's, uh, that book would be a, a VCDX book in, in, in and of itself. Uh, but I think, it, I, I, as far as I gather, it's going to be a sort of kind of a real-world proven concepts kind of uh, thing. They, they even, even got Jason Bucky on board as the technical editor for it. So I, I, I think they'll have a, a, a lot of really valuable content in it. But again, that's a, that's a kind of a, it, look, it looks to be a kind of a broader uh, whole infrastructure view, uh, kind of should you use vSwitches versus dvSwitches and so on. Uh, I would, as Ed said, would really like to see a, a specific book on, on virtual networking. Uh, everything from vSwitches to dvSwitches to the Nexus stuff and whatever. Uh, much in the same form as the AJ and the RS technically deep, deep dive book. Yeah, uh, the there's got to be a market for that as well. And going all the way to the back end, even talk some about switches or Cisco, yeah. some Cisco stuff or something like that. Yeah, or yeah. HP as I'm running. So, yeah. yeah. I guess the problem is, is that the people that are hardcore networky people kind of view virtual networking at the moment as a little bit of a joke, as in uh, it's not real networking, is it? And so, yeah, well, it's real world for the most of us. I, yeah, I, I, that's I mean, the problem. I, I, I'm one of these. Uh, I've said this before, but I, I wear a lot of hats. I mean, I, I'm do, I do virtualization, I do Windows stuff, I do networking, I do storage, I do I do everything. Um, you can't possibly be an expert on everything, but. In most cases, using that stuff works out pretty well. Even even if it's um, your local Cisco guru hasn't validated your design, it, it'll still work, and it, it'll still be a real-world example of how you can use this stuff. And, uh, I mean, let the networking snobs or whatever do whatever they want. We need something that's kind of in tune with reality for the most of us. Well, there's the idea of good enough, you know, like most yeah, of it's yeah. just good enough for what us system type people need to do, you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we don't need a lot of these advanced features. We don't need a lot of, I don't need features in, in my virtual switches that, uh, a, a major ISP would, would need. I'm not solving that same problem. I need just, just enough to deliver services to my, virtual machines and uh and do so you know reasonably secure in a secure way and in a reasonably uh speedy efficient way you know and so yeah the fact that these v switches aren't complex or uh you know very you know super functional in either in any way you know it actually isn't that big of a drawback to most uh, systems folks i agree with that and speaking of uh, clever things that you might need to do with your networking did anyone see Cody Bunch's post about how to enable IPv6 on your hosts, given that apparently that we are, we've run out of IP addresses, the internet is going to die now. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm sorry, all iTunes people, that you know this will probably uh, broadcast stop halfway through because we've run out of addresses for it. Yeah. Um, I've got one. Anyone want to borrow it? A spare IP address. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. I've got I've got loads, but they all seem to start one nine two one six eight. Oh. Uh, yeah. So so do so do mine. 
Oh, okay. Okay. Well, a lot of the, uh, I think a lot of the uh, initial, or not the initial, but the, the end sort of stage uh, IPv4 rush here, you know, all of the IPs were going away really fast, and uh, uh, I think a lot of that was land grabs by ISPs and stuff like that, you know, try to try to grab a, a batch of IPs uh, so that uh, they could prolong prolong their situation, you know, without having to seriously look at IPv6. Yeah, I think, you know, for, for most domestic people, the fact that 90% of domestic routers don't support it is probably the big the big issue. But Yeah, yeah I usually instantly, if I load a VM, I usually disable it to, to stop it from causing any weird issues. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I think we all do that. I do, yeah. I do the same thing with my Windows 2008 VMs as well. Yep. Yeah. And then let the template just... Turn off IPv6. I don't use it in my local network yet, at least. So turn it off. Make sure it doesn't interfere with anything or any weird kind of uh, security issue that might arise from having it enabled but not activated. Uh, I'll make sure that it's it's not on. At some point, we, we, we're we going to have to look at this. But for now, I don't know. The apocalypse isn't that close, I, I, I think. Uh, perhaps in the the public networks, I don't know. It's uh, the ISP don't give you IPv6 all that easily in, right now, anyway. So we're kind of stuck there. Well, and that's true in Europe, in the US, you know. But Asia, you know, just the sheer number of people in Asia, uh, they've, you know, that's a big a, a big area where IPv6 is growing, and uh, you know, the inability for an IPv6 only client in Asia to talk to, you know, your company's web server or something like that. That actually might have business implications too. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and in Asia they need more. Um, yeah, they need more public addresses so that they can have more uh, spam bots out there. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, you have all these trans- transitional technologies, though, like Torito and whatever. I, I I don't know all that stuff, but. There are ways of doing that to, to provide IPv6 connectivity to nodes that are in IPv4 networks. So, but, but the thing is, uh, the ISPs and the, the uh, whatever needs to actually get this kind of set up to be able to have a, a, a functional both IPv4 and IPv6 network. Yep, no, I agree. And, you know, it's just going to be this big iterative thing where, uh, you know, well, like you guys said, you know, home routers don't really support this. We've been shutting it off, that sort of thing. You know, somebody's going to have to provide it. Then we're going to have to, you know, get a, get new routers or get new router software. And so it's going to be years before we see real. It's been years. Well, it has been years, but you know, yeah. uh, IPv4 is twenty, thirty years old as well. You know, in fact, uh, some of the. Um, some of the speeches I've I've heard, you know, Vint Cerf and and some of those guys, uh, uh, when they've been talking, they are sort of the, the folks that invented a lot of the stuff are sort of astonished that it even works as well as it does nowadays, you know, yeah, that uh, any of the stuff stuck around. It wasn't designed for the, what we're doing with it, so no. That's true. But there was also some some other sort of big networking changes coming in, in that Ethernet just seems to be getting faster and faster. Um, I'm hearing that you know 10 gig is popular now, and that blink and you'll that'll suddenly be 40 gig, and blink again, and that's suddenly going to be 100 gig Ethernet. Um, 
At Cisco Live, um, one of my colleagues went, uh, networking guy, and he saw a demonstration of a hundred gig Ethernet actually functioning. <sighs> that was pretty. That's that's got to be pretty quick, but you know, I can already stream like movies to my my PS3 fine just with with regular gig. What, what do I need a hundred gig for? Um, well, the backbone providers, though, you know, they're oh, loving yeah. it because you know it's less fiber in the ground, less stuff to maintain, you know, and uh, uh, you know that's kind of cool. And servers are finally. You know, this this year we'll see a lot of most of the servers switching over to be able to uh, be delivered with like 10 gig Ethernet on board, whereas you know up until now it's been basically one gig. You know, with 100 gig, I don't believe these these servers could even push anything close to that. No, no well, well, gigabit was like that when it was was first sort of around that everyone knew that you even though you had a gigabit network card, um, the the old sort of PCI bus just couldn't. You couldn't shift data across the bus fast enough. Um, so for most home computers, it was just a sort of an exercise in, in dick waving, really. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, a decent server can fill at least two 10 gig pipes now, you know, like, and it doesn't take that much to get, uh, well, you know, if, if one server can fill that, you know, your 100, uh, your 100 gig link is, is dead with five, uh, uh, with five hosts, you know, not that I, you know, not, it would be, yeah, pushing 10 gigs or even 20 is pretty incredible. You know, I, I don't know of any apps, maybe some video streaming. I bet Skype themselves could probably talk about it, but, uh, um, you know, <laughs> that's, for, <laughs> that's kind of funny because I, I, one of the things I mentioned in, in, in my talk, uh, this week was that we banned Skype from, from the vessels uh, because of the bandwidth usage. Of course, we use satellite communications and whatever, so it's pretty pretty costly. Uh, uh, we don't want to spend all our money on Skyping home. Uh, but I went as far as, as actually uh, describing Skype as a virus. And that kind of got the attention of the crowd a bit. Uh, I got a lot of laughs out of that one because... But in many ways, it is. It, 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 yeah, tries it to finds do whatever, whatever way it can. it can to get out your network, like uh, yeah. like MSN used to. Uh, yeah. I remember years ago trying to you, know, you try and block some MSN specific ports, and oh no, it'll go out on port eighty, and yeah, it'll it'll port hop and, and use just about any way it can use to get out your network. Well, it's one of those things that you know uh, technology can't solve people problems, you know. And uh, Skype is probably not doing it maliciously, you know. They're just trying to reduce their own support needs, you know. And so, yeah, it ends up looking like a virus to to people who run networks and and uh, IT administrators and that. But uh, um, yeah, you know, it's just it's sort of yeah, it's that's a that's a tough comparison. You know, you, you guys have, well, you guys have got me using Skype now, you know, up until this moment, this moment, uh, I haven't, uh, really ever used Skype for anything more than a test call to the sound check, uh, the sound check bot, you know, so. Which didn't answer if I remember correctly. It wasn't, the sound check bot was not picking up yesterday morning in the U.S. So, <laughs> yes, that was, uh, disconcerting. <laughs> wow. IP address. Gonna say guess. when when the Skype sound chat bot is screening your calls, then you know you're on pop. Yeah, yeah. No kidding, you know. <laughs> I can't even get to the computers to like me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you just get to its answer phone. I'm sorry, the bot can't, nice, doesn't nice. want to talk to you right now. If you'd yeah. like to leave a message, it won't be played back to you. Like the Skype equivalent of that uh rejection phone number line <laughs> thing. But, yeah. Yeah. But 
Yeah, no, all this talk about the 10 gig, uh, about bandwidth and uh, 10 gig and 100 gig and, and all that stuff. Uh, yeah, we're going into, we're kind of looking at what we're doing for networking right now at the UW. The, uh, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit, and Chris, I believe you were actually mentioning before, you know, the idea of actually doing a, uh, an environment design versus just sort of organic growth. Yeah. You know, we've sort of just kind of organically grown our environment, you know, and we've uh, up until, well, up until recently, we've just kind of been trying to play along with, you know, try to get along in the the world of the physical servers. You know, we, we do our backups uh, on a per VM level still, uh, file-based backups on a per VM level rather than, yep. or in, inside the VMs, inside the OSs, as opposed to backing up the whole VM itself. You know, we... Um, there's a lot of stuff like that, and networking is one of them. We're finally to the point, you know, uh, we've got customers asking for 10 gig connections. Not that we really have a lot using it right now, but we'd like to be in a good position to to provide it. We've got, you know, bigger hosts. Uh, I've been, I sort of agree with the uh, with Steve Chambers' approach to uh, uh, big big servers versus small servers, where uh, his point when he's been talking about is usually that problems are IT problems are mostly people related. It's not the hardware failing. So you might as well have fewer bigger boxes and gain some efficiencies there. I happen to subscribe to that, that line of thought. And, uh, uh, but you see, I wonder whether Steve's point of view has had to change now because his vision obviously has to be a V block. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had Sorry, Steve, if you're listening, um, <laughs> But, you're yeah. you're going to hear that one. He's going to reply to you for that one, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, but you know the the UCS stuff is well. I suppose you can get big UCS stuff, but he's yeah, going to say that a VBlock is a big server. Um, therefore, yeah. and the people don't have to look at it. So I, I'm already countering his argument and, and, and the saucy mail I'll get later. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, you know, the bigger hosts you have, the bigger links you need out of them to avoid just, you know, general operational problems and also the idea of vMotion, you know. I, I want to I want to clear off a host that's got five hundred and twelve gigs of RAM, half a terabyte of RAM, and over one gig uh links, one gig vMotion links that's going to take some time it takes forever and so you know thinking about 10 gig ethernet and even some of the like you know sego does uh and with their io directors they do infiniband and you have the option of uh, doing ip over infiniband you know and that's 20 uh 20 to 40 gigs a second you know that's pretty cool you know commodity 10 gig you know servers are are starting to i'll be able to order my next batch of servers for growing our environment uh the uh, um will have the option of 10 gigabit uh, copper connectivity on them. And uh, so I'd like to actually take advantage of that. Yeah, so it we're seems really like those, take... those new Dells are getting released with the, the 10 gig, uh, the 10 gig copper. Yep. Dells were refer- all, they're always refreshing their product line. And yeah, it looks like a refresh is either happening or has happened that, uh, that are allowing that you can get, uh, you can, well, and they're shipping with SFPs or SFP plus uh, ports on the back, you know, so you can put whatever you want in in there, you know, whether it's copper or you want to do fiber or whatever. Fibers, you know, fiber's cool. Um, you don't have some of the problems with uh, that copper does, but copper's cheap as well, you know. And 
copper is a technology that many data center folks already understand. So by copper, are, you, are we talking sort of regular CAT something cable? I presume yeah. it's not going to be CAT5, CAT6. It's this is CAT5, the next like level. 70 or something like that. I, I'm not super familiar with it. And I guess that's part of the point is we're kind of going through a design exercise right now. Like how how would we add 10 gig capabilities to our environment? You know, would, would it be through... Uh, through individual links to the servers, you know, would I run two 10 gig drops out to each server, or should I do something like a Sego, you know, IO director or Vertensis IO director? Uh, there's a lot of different options out there, and it's pretty cool. Well, the fact the fact still remains that whatever, however big of a pipe we get, we're going to use it somehow anyway. It used to be the same argument with one gig. We don't need that. Now it's 10 gig, and next it's 100 gig. It, do, it doesn't really matter because at some point we're going, actually going to use it anyway, whatever bandwidth we have available. Yeah, yeah somebody's like, going to come along. Like the goldfish assume. in the bowl, it's, it'll grow to fit the bowl. Yeah. Your, your requirements will always grow to fit you know, so what, you can, uh, what you can offer. Well, yeah, projects come along and just assume that, hey, you know, like 100 gig Ethernet is out there. We can just use that, you know, like somebody will somebody will put it in for us, you know. And so being prepared for it, that's kind of what we're doing right now with with the 10 gig is, you know, people are coming along and asking for it. But uh, and we'd, we'd like instead of them buying physical hardware, you know, just trying to keep trying to keep the physical hardware down in our data center, you know, uh, and uh, trying to keep the excuses for buying physical hardware off the table, you know, and so one, that's also a big reason to not, not just intercluster, you know, host to host communications, but also, you know, suppression of excuse suppression, if you will, you know, like, uh, we need 10 gig for our, for app X. Well, you know, turns out you can use a VM for that now. So. Yeah, I guess, um, preventing, um, application owners from giving, yeah, giving them that excuse of, oh no, we need this. So we've got to have a, uh, Got to have it on physical. Um, yep. Well, you know, no matter how how hard you you fight that battle, it, they'll always think of something new that you need to, that they need so that they can have a little server and a little blue light to hug. God yep. bless. Them. Well, uh, and that fits <laughs> in the subcategory of you know, technology doesn't solve people problems. You know, eventually somebody's got to come along, a manager or something, and just be like, no, you know. Yeah. So you've got you've got to get past the layer eight issue. Yep, layer eight sucks. <laughs> oh, you gave me some images now. I, I, I didn't want them right now. <laughs> Sorry, Christian. <laughs> I'll do anything to get that server on board. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> that's a data center. What? <laughs> We're back to big fat pipes again, aren't we? <laughs> Indeed. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking earlier. Back, to, back okay. down to earth. <laughs> I was thinking earlier of adding a joke uh, when Christian said, no matter how big the pipe is, uh, we'll use it. I thought of adding that's what she said at the end. <laughs> well, you, you had your, yeah. You I had, had your, my your, chance your, and I blew it. But, uh. <laughs> oh, dear me. So um, I wonder whether we're going to get a chance to do uh, VSoup live from uh, VMworld this year. It would be nice. Uh, yeah, so they, they've now released all the, the dates and locations, and you know, now's the time we need to start badgering um, managers to say, oh, VMworld, how do you feel about that? Um, I personally, I want to go to America. I want to go to Vegas for it. Um, not just because it's Vegas, um, but 
I think that the, the feedback from people who've been to the US event just seems better. Um, I've only I've been to three European events and I've had you know I've had a pretty good time at them. Um, I I thought Copenhagen was great. I I liked uh, Nice as well. Um, sorry, Cannes rather. But uh, what do you guys think? Uh, I was I was uh, I heard a lot of people complained about the Copenhagen event last year, but actually that was my first VM World, and I was I was really impressed with it, uh, especially the labs. Uh, the labs were great. It's the first time I was able to get into the labs um, because previously they weren't particularly on demand, and you had to book certain sessions. And they were only running la- certain labs at certain times, and you had to fill out eight forms in triplicate in order to be able to get up there, and it, it just didn't really. And they, they were also hidden. Um, you had to try and find them somewhere in Cannes, uh, which made life a little bit harder. So, yeah, they, they were a, a big feature of this year. And the fact that everything was all in one place in the Bella Centre, it was all on one level. You didn't have to go up 18 different flights of stairs to try and find a, a session which was then overbooked. So you then try and find another session and have to go up, up and down another 18 different flights of stairs. Um, so the fact that the sessions were all nice and close together, that was great. Um, the facilities were as good as they've ever been in terms of the catering. Uh, so I didn't have any issues with that. But yeah, some people do seem to be a little bit down on Copenhagen. Uh, I don't I, quite know. I don't get it. it. I don't get it. I, 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 given it was my first VM World last year, but I thought Copenhagen was great. But then again, I'm from Norway, and that's in Denmark. I, I mean, it's an hour and a half flight, so that's uh, very cool as far as I'm concerned. It's not a lot of traveling uh, involved, which would be if I were to go to Las Vegas. But I, I thought, thought Copenhagen was excellent, actually, and I'm, I'm highly unlikely to be able to go to the U.S. to, to attend the VM World anyway. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, Copenhagen is Sounds like a good idea, and the Bella Center was was excellent. Now next year or this year rather, uh, the uh, the new hotel will will be ready as well, which means you could probably stay there and stay one, I guess, fifty meters from the the actual intr- entrance point. So I don't I don't really get why people were a bit negative. Uh, it seems so on Twitter as well uh, that people were a bit mm. negative to Copenhagen, but I don't I don't know why. Uh, you know, but then again, Copenhagen is expensive. Uh, but I'm from Norway. Yeah, that was where... the that was the main thing. I think the, the yeah, expense. Okay. What I was going to say as well was it's just kind of expensive. No, it's uh, cheap <laughs> for you, man. <laughs> yeah. Comparative, oh, comparatively, for uh, within Europe or whatever, you, you you guys might find it that way. But it's it, uh, it compared to the U.S. dollar. You know, the U.S. dollar's not in good shape. Well, whose is? But uh, the. Uh, um, the U.S. dollar comparative uh, to Europe, European currencies, the euro and that, it's not great right now. So for for uh, U.S. attendees for the Europe conference, which, you know, admittedly there probably aren't as many, the uh, – uh, and I think – you might you guys might be hearing a, a vocal minority, if you will, you know, people uh, from the U.S. that were complaining about, oh, there's not a hotel immediately attached to it, or <laughs> oh, like it's expensive, you know, like, eh, to what extent do we do we uh, respond to them versus the you know thousands of folks like like yourselves that really enjoyed Copenhagen, and uh, not saying that I didn't, I actually really enjoyed Copenhagen as well. You know, the two conferences have a completely different feel, and. Uh, um, yeah, no, I I enjoyed it, but I think you know you guys might just be hearing a vocal minority. 
But you being, uh, Bob, are you going to both and uh, presenting at one and visiting the other one? Which one would you say you enjoyed better? Well, you know, it's actually, uh, I can't answer that. And I'm not going to be, I'm not trying to be coy or, you know, like, oh, like diplomatic or anything like that. But uh, VMworld US is all about the technology. You know, uh, all of the product announcements are being made for VMworld US. Uh, all of the vendors and all that stuff are really, that's kind of what's happening for that conference. Uh, VMworld Europe, for me at least, seemed like it was all about the community. You know, it was more about uh, the community surrounding VMworld or uh, the VMware environments, you know, all of the community stuff. And, uh, um, you know, that's kind of what I took out of either one of them. The, uh, uh, yeah, they're just two two different feeling conferences in my opinion maybe you'd say less of a vendor fest in uh, Copenhagen than in uh, oh absolutely Copenhagen was pretty uh, pretty tame compared to the uh, crazy crazy stuff that goes on in the uh, the solutions exchange at VMworld US hmm. fair enough yeah that does sound, sound quite different because um, obviously this, this week and well, starting next week is they've got a partner exchange in uh, Orlando so yep. that's where, where all the cool kids get to go. Um, unfortunately, we're stuck at home. But uh, I, d- I don't know, sort of, I'm guessing that's, does that have a solutions exchange? Is that a sort of a mini VM world or is it? It probably doesn't have a solution. Well, I don't know. I can't, actually can't. So it's got to be some to sort of partner to partner type sales, is it? Or is it, is it really just a um, an event put on by VM, VMware themselves? Um was something that I thought was quite interesting. Um, I'm hoping maybe in, in years to come uh, that the uh, company I'm moving to are a uh, VMware partner and perhaps they might like to attend it and I'll, uh, I'll be able to report live from uh, from subsequent uh, events. Yeah, it doesn't look like there's uh, a a uh, solutions exchange, but it's it's mainly focused on a lot of labs and a lot of education and stuff like that, you know, boot camps and things like that. So, just given what the website is saying. All ah, right. I guess uh, I suspect the the announcement that sort of leaked out tonight, or that people have suddenly noticed tonight on Twitter, um, about some new certifications that uh, VMware have launched, probably it, it will be made at Partner Exchange. Will be certainly you know given a hard launch rather than the soft launch. I suspect that they've just done uh, of the desktop. Ones, so they're starting. They're doing a three-level by the looks of it. Um, you've got the VMware Certified Associate, which appears to be sort of a, a VCP light, if, if you will, um, for desktops. Uh, basically, I'm guessing a, it's going to be a, a view administrator type thing. Um, hopefully, I'll be able to give a bit more feedback. So I've uh, actually signed up to take the uh, the beta exam in a, a few weeks' time. So. We'll, uh, we'll see how that is. I suppose I'd better start learning some view stuff. Um, but they're, they're taking that through the VCP and VCAP levels. So if you've got, I guess, a, an environment that is very so heavily focused on uh, desktop virtualization that you have a, an equally matching cert, which I think is fair because the as we talked about last week, that the skill set, yeah, there's some underlying skills, but the the mindset for running a desktop, a virtualized desktop environment, seems so different um, that perhaps it does deserve its own certs. Yeah, we could guess so. Um, there are differences there, so it makes a lot of sense. But 
as far as I can gather from it, it doesn't have the same requirements with regards regards to to actually having to attend an official course as uh, as the VCP does. The associate doesn't. No, the associate, like I say, it's just a a pretty low level one. I think once you do the VCP for uh, DT. I was just reading the uh, fruit we asked questions. Um, yeah, the VCP levels you, you and the VCAP ones, you need to have attended a course and have a VCP yeah. in it, respectively. So, you know, it, there is a, a bit of a, uh, what's the word, sort of a, a certification ladder to work your way up along that desktop track. So, yeah, I, th- I think that's a, it's a pretty good idea. Does this mean that this is the year of the virtualized desktop? No, that's oh, no, no, it must be true. No, <laughs> It's the year well, of spending know, all your money on certifications year. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's the one. I, I, got, I enjoy doing certs. I think it's sort of it's it's a great way of giving yourself a uh, a goal of you know it's knowledge. There's some of it is making your CV look nice. Um, some of it is just you know proving to yourself that you know it, and that sometimes if you are in a situation where um, Someone's not too sure of your knowledge. At least they can see if you've got the cert, depending on the cert, uh, that you've got a baseline level of uh, of nous about the uh, the subjects in in the conversation. Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I've been in the same job now for over seven years, uh, so I haven't really put that much in effort into doing certs. Uh, I'll probably do the VCP this year, though, just to get it done. I've been thinking about it for ages, but never actually done anything with it. So I should uh, just to basically just get the letters, uh, get the confirmation of it. But that, it, I find that when I study for the certs, I really start to pick up stuff that I didn't know before, I didn't care to know before, stuff that might not um, apply to my environment, but it's still good to know that stuff. Yeah, it really forces you outside your comfort zone. Um, I found the um, the VCAP doing that the work for the VCAP once really pushed me outside that because so much of it was designed around someone who perhaps works in a more professional services based environment or uh, works for a partner or as a consultant that is perhaps dealing with the all of the, the sidebar applications as I call it with uh, vSphere so heartbeat um, SRM orchestrator things that most people probably wouldn't be playing with um, and the fact that it forces you to at least get your fingers dirty a little bit with them uh, is a good thing. Yeah, I'm the way where if I learn a product, I want to learn the entire product, even if I don't use it or not, you, whatever. Mind you, there's, there's just so much of, of vSphere now. It's, it's pretty difficult to do, I think. Yeah. It's, you know, as long as your, your level of knowledge is, as Bob said, good enough, is, is it good enough for, you, for the role you you're in and perhaps for the role that you want to be in on one of the earlier episodes i was uh, having a a chat about how to achieve your ultimate uh, availability and uptime and uh, i seem to be finding myself designing uh you know extra and additional availability for solutions and one of the things that that cropped up was around vcenter availability uh, which also sort of links back to last episode's uh conversations with uh, Julian Wood around the the way that they had to run multiple vCenters and that Heartbeat wasn't quite right for them uh, and I'm now trying to find myself 
looking to provide you know, vCenter high availability. And drawing a little bit of a blank because I think I'm going to have to go with Heartbeat, mainly because we've got disaster recovery sites in different subnets. And all of the high availability solutions that would be based at the a VM level or at a, um, sort of a Windows OS level, so uh, double take or just directly cloning the VM, all will assume that you've got the same subnet at each side. And if you try to change the IP of Virtual Center, then as far as I can tell, even if you've got DNS working, there's a good chance it's going to upset your hosts. Yeah, you would have to That's... probably re-add every, every host. Yeah, so I'm wondering, do you have to do that with Heartbeat? What does Heartbeat do to mitigate that? I don't know. I, 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 in our environment, we just skipped the whole problem with actually having the same subnet in both sites. <laughs> I did that for. I had a long struggle with our ISP to to get that working. But uh, oh, so you had to set up a proper stretch VLAN and all of yeah, that good stuff. Yeah. Wow. So I have everything going in the same. I, I can power up a VM, whatever site I want to. And it's the same site anyway, same subnet anyway. So yeah, same with I just us. Just designed we're... around it. Same with us. We're layer two across sites, so yeah. Yeah, it just seems to me that that's that's got to be the way to go. Um, because the, the the other thing I'd be looking at was geoclusters, and that if you want to try and geocluster with. Um, disparate subnets at each site, you get massively stuck. Looks like uh, Windows 2008 supports it. SQL 2008 does not. So whilst the, the underlying OS cluster will deal with it, it'll probably moan a little bit, but it'll deal with it. Trying to put the application on top of it that you're trying to actually use as the resource doesn't deal with it. Um, so, yeah, it leaves us, leaves us a little bit stuck. So I'm, I'm guessing that yeah, the, the never fail based solution of, of Heartbeat. It's got to be the only one to do, but whether we're going to have to do a trial run um, with some different sites and see how it's going to upset the hosts, because they've got this WAN mode, which it says is designed for when you've got different subnets in each each site, but it doesn't mention anything about having to remove and re-add the VMs afterwards, uh, the, the hosts afterwards. So... As, have you guys ever played with Heartbeat at all? Um, no, actually haven't. Um, haven't had a chance to, uh, maybe in some later projects or so. But, yeah, I haven't done anything with it either. I've got eval licenses for it right now, but uh, it's just not its not something that's on my radar. Right now we're just replicating. We're, uh, we've got an off-site host. We've got two two clusters, one on, uh, one on-site, one is our sort of DR one and I'm replicating the database and some of the the directory worth of files that uh, vCenter cares about, but um, nothing with Heartbeat. It hasn't really been a priority. So, no. oh, so you've you've got a, a standby virtual center? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, what I'm using for my test uh, my test environments vCenter instance. Uh, I've got that set up so that I can uh, just change the database it's pointing at and uh, get it fired up as a production in relatively short order. So. Cool. Yeah, same with us. We have a second vCenter in a, in a different site, and uh, we, we actually will just 
restore the database to it if if needed. I've heard. Now, I'm not so sure how much truth there is and whether it's, again, a little bit of scaremongering to sell heartbeat licenses. But there's, you've got potential problems because of vCenter 4 using the whole Adam uh, directory. Essentially, you know, the, the lightweight directory that holds all of the roles in it. And if you just have a standby server and restore the database in, you suddenly lose all of your roles and permissions. Hmm. You guys come across that? I hadn't really thought about that one, but that's there a... was an article. I think it was on Yellow Bricks. Um, oh. If it's not on Yellow Bricks, I will find it later and publish it in the the show notes. But I've, I've got a feeling it was on Yellow Bricks. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a concern, and that you know that's actually uh, um, yeah, that's why the uh, the the whole Atom thing is why your uh, vCenter server can't be a domain controller as well yes you know the uh uh but uh yeah that just that makes it way more complex now that you mentioned that yeah it, it it does throw a screwdriver whilst that plan i think was brilliant for virtual center 2.5 um and it's exactly what i had in mind when i was designing the sort of virtual center availability long before heartbeat was about i was like right we'll have a vm there that's cold and i can just restore a single database and that's fine but once you start, once you start to add things like Adam in, it's, it gets a bit messy. Yeah. Uh, so I don't quite know how that's going to work. I actually had to restore my vCenter in a pinch one time, and I recall all the roles being there and working. Oh. It was some time ago. Ah, oh, cool. Okay, well, well I guess it's probably we'll going to require some additional research here. Yeah, that'd be something we'd quite nice to circle back on in a another call, perhaps. Thanks for listening to the fourth episode of VSoup. Be sure to follow us on VSoup at VSoup underscore podcast and uh, search for us in iTunes. Um, this episode will be giving away um, HA and DRS deep dive book. Keep your eye on VSoup.net for details.